0: Welcome to Filming Matters, a podcast hosted by Katie and Josh. A movie podcast where a married couple reviews and talks about movies. This week, we are discussing the film noir and taking a look at two films that we feel highlight the genre in different ways: 1955's *Diabolique* and 2021's *Nightmare Alley*. And. We wanted to open up the discussion in the podcast. Uh, I thought it would be helpful to talk a little bit about what makes a film noir. The words film noir are French for dark film or black film. And often you see these films characterized by uh, having cynical heroes, stark lighting effects, frequent use of flashbacks, intricate plots, and underlying existentialist philosophies. The genre was uh, most prevalent in American crime dramas of the post-World War II era. And really, early examples of the noir style include uh, like dark, stylized detective films. And what I found interesting researching what makes a film noir was that the early films from the early 40s Were actually banned in occupied countries during World War II and that those films didn't become available throughout Europe until 1946. And the French really found these types of films very appealing with their cynicism and their dark brooding style. And the the French critics are actually the ones who coined the term film noir in reference to that low-key lighting that was used to enhance those dramas in a very stylistic way Um, although the term would not become commonplace uh, until 1955 in film critic circles and that I think you can see show up in the film Diabolica French film
1: Absolutely. It seemed like that just with the lighting kind of set the stage for the story, in my opinion, I think you get that right as the film starts. Uh, It really opens up kind of a new level of uh, film. Whenever you think back, uh, looking at today's society when it's been so long since we've had the experience of film noir, I thought it was kind of interesting to go back into a film from 1955 and get that different aspect of how uh, this type of genre is something that you don't really see anymore.
0: Or that's something that I think you lose whenever you are filming in color. You don't get necessarily those really highlighted contrasts in light and shadow that you do whenever you film in black and white. And so there's a darkness that you see in these films that's not only apparent in the cinematography, but also in the themes that circle around disenchantment and cynicism, disillusionment, pessimism. All of these themes historically were rooted in a lot of the novels that many of the films of the 40s were based on, that were written in the 30s during the Great Depression. And so a lot of that unstable kind of American dream crumbling, (laughs) uh, those feelings of threat and instability definitely show up in the artistic themes of those novels and then those films. And I also found it interesting that there is some controversy as to whether or not film noir is actually classified as a genre or a subgenre, or if the term is just talking about stylistic elements, um, because there's not necessarily like a thematic coherence, because like we often see it applied to crime dramas. But there are also like westerns and and comedies that have aspects of film noir as well. And so it would seem that a lot of what we see in film noir, especially in early film noir, deals a lot more with like the stylistic elements as opposed to necessarily the plots of the film.
1: Hmm. I guess now that's something I'll have to look for in other film. Genres to see if there's any kind of elements of that noir in them.
0: Yeah, uh, some folks have even considered that uh, It's a Wonderful Life could be considered like noir ish because the main protagonist is suicidal and there's like this really bleak depiction of small town life and it's kind of got a dismal outlook mm, i
1: didn't really get that vibe from it's a wonderful life not at all i guess it's all just a matter of opinion but um, i didn't pick up on any of that whenever i've watched it the 500 different times that i've seen it
0: i've only seen it once i think but yeah i could definitely I could definitely pick up on on uh, a very dark outlook on life <laughs> yeah
1: well, let's talk about diabolique
0: yes please with Diabolique there's definitely a lot of use of that noir lighting. There's lots of use of dark shadows, people lurking in shadows, uh, shadows creeping out to get people, using light to highlight certain aspects and features of, of actors' faces and what, what actions are going on, what you see and what you can't see.
1: Yeah, it seems like that there was a lot of uh, personality that had to come through from the character performances more so in actions than in words, I found. Of course, especially with this being a foreign film, uh, I liked the fact that there wasn't as much focus uh, based on those lines and the different um, dialogue that you saw as far as coming out vocally. Or verbally, uh, this was more just, you could say that there was a whole lot more expression in the characters' performances uh, with body language and the way that they carried themselves and their reactions in certain situations.
0: Yeah, and so the film centers around this intricate, layered plot of revenge where a School principal's chronically ill wife and his mistress plot to kill him because he is noticeably and uh, remarkably cruel and violent and abusive and also a (laughs) cheapskate. And he, uh, he, he makes no bones about being attached to his wife only because of the money that she brought to the relationship and he, he really just enjoys controlling and manipulating people, whether it's students or his mistress or his wife, his employees. He, he just likes being cruel and having power over others. And so they decide to take that power back and decide to kill him so that way they don't have to deal with his nonsense anymore. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's an interesting plot because uh, my thoughts with the film were that um, it just jumped right into it. There was not any. Um, there wasn't a whole lot leading up to the fact of here's what the actual uh, plot and the dynamics are around the film. It's caught me as interesting because uh, here it is, just within the first, you know, five ten minutes of the film. It's we have the wife, we have the mistress. They've been plotting together. They're going to kill the husband. So it's not. Um, There's not a whole lot that goes on uh, leading up to that fact. You just kind of get... The film just jumps right into uh, what's going to happen.
0: Yeah, whenever we started the film and knowing the background of the plot points and having seen the 90s remake, when I saw the runtime of about two hours, I was kind of surprised because in, in... It seems like overall most films that are that old generally tended to run towards a tighter runtime of like an hour and a half or so. And so I was kind of wondering how the plot was going to unfold within that time frame and whether or not there would be those moments of any kind of like dead air or where things were kind of boring. But I was really impressed in like what you were talking about, like how the film jumped right into the main points and there was never a dull moment there was always there were always moments of action and everything that happened happened for a reason to unfold what the story was
1: yeah i agree i thought that um the film didn't seem to lag on i thought that it went by fast Mm -hmm. and i thought that it was uh, really good Um, mixture of suspense that didn't even have to necessarily be uh, a whole lot leading up to that particular suspense aspect, if you will. Um, There's um, several different situations where uh, their cover almost gets blown or they almost get found out in this plot for murder. Sometimes it happened during the middle of broad daylight. Sometimes it would happen, you know, just uh, as a matter of really leading you to the edge of your seat. And it may not be, you know, any kind of um, what we see that we're used to in film with a lot of um, you know background score uh, playing into that role or you know uh, different changes in the camera focusing in and out it was just kind of more of a naturalistic approach throughout the film which I appreciated
0: yeah I liked you talking about the lack of there being kind of like a score to indicate like mood I think that the camera did that job most of the time in this movie, because uh, with the with the camera work, you definitely got the emotions of the characters and the tension and intensity of the situation that they were in. Uh, I'm I'm especially thinking of whenever that with that scene where the wife is like highly anticipating the reveal of the body in the pool once they drain it and she keeps staring out the window and it seems like every couple seconds the 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 camera will kind of like it like instantly zoom in on her face just more and more and more to just like how tense and anxious she is to the and then like you almost feel the same kind of like shock and drama that she does when you find out there is nobody in the pool and she faints
1: Yes, yeah, it was really good um, as far as uh, a lot of on the edge of your seat moments uh, that didn't take it over the top. I thought that it was just enough to keep you interested, uh, but also keep you on the edge of your seat as well, uh, where you didn't just kind of tone out after a while. Yeah, uh, it, it kept my attention all along throughout the two-hour feature film. So the film is interesting to me to follow along with because you have the portion of the film where it's the leading up and plotting of the murder you have the actual act itself that's carried out which is a good portion of the film then you have this going on of suspense and you have this element of uh, cat and mouse, and then which leads into the element of not getting caught. When you look into the element of not getting caught, uh, I think that it taps down into the depths of everyone's soul, where you have that certain something that you hold on to that you don't want to ever get found out about. Um, perhaps that there's uh, just something that deep dark within all of us that we don't want to ever come out. And whenever we see that sense of almost being revealed, there's that inner human nature of just um, some instability there and fierce um the fierce action of not wanting to get revealed by any means. Um, and I think that this film kind of plays into that.
0: There's definitely the the dark underbelly of everyone's soul, right. <laughs> and uh, with this film, and with the other, there's the emphasis on greed and materialism and selfishness. Because the plot within the plot of the film, which is often another theme that you see in film noir's intricate plot devices, is that in actuality the mistress and the husband are the ones who have created this created this scheme to actually murder the wife and take all of her money
1: so everybody gets bamboozled in the end so uh, that was one thing that really stuck out to me about this film I thought that was a really good twist in the end so you have uh, the wife and the mistress who plot together to kill the husband they kill the husband but then and then the majority of the film ranks on the fact of them getting away with that and they're not being a body that is actually found. So the body comes up missing. So that is the biggest roller coaster of emotions and ups and downs in the plot twists within the film. Well, then, in the end, once the body's actually revealed, you figure out that he never was really dead. It was he and the mistress that were actually turning the tables on the wife. And then they get found out. So then there's just a whole lot going on in the story, but it doesn't overcomplicate itself. It keeps you with it the whole entire film. To me, in uh, comparison to 1960's Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, uh, the big reveal at the end, uh, which I guess this film um, didn't get the notoriety that it should have, even though it was um, big and popular in 1955. It didn't have quite the um, effect on American culture overall like Psycho did but to me it was just as big of a reveal in the end uh, with the plot twist and something that you'd never expect.
0: Yeah, and they even put at the end of the film a title card saying to, uh, you know, don't ruin The ending for any of your friends just tell them to go see the movie basically
1: i love that i thought that was such a um action of its time Mm -hmm. you know going back to you know you're going to watch the film in the theater then you know don't don't ruin it don't ruin it for everybody else i really like that yeah
0: Sorry for spoiling it for you now, if you haven't seen it already, but, you know, it's a 60-plus-year-old film.
1: Yeah, so I'm sure um, a lot of people probably haven't heard of it. It was remade in the 1990s with Sharon Stone. Isabella Johnny, uh, Chaz Palminteri and, uh, Kathy Bates. I liked the remake personally. I thought it was really, um, good, but, uh, it was not well received by critics and fans. So really didn't do that well in the box office, nor, uh, did the critics really like it, but I thought that the remake was good. Um, but of course you can't get past the quintessential, uh, greatness that the original has. You're not going to get the same effect with the remake as you are with that initial uh, film noir, with the lighting, with the superb acting that doesn't rely a whole lot on the that doesn't rely a whole lot on the actual uh, lines, Um, you're going to get down to the nitty-gritty of the 1955 version that's uh, much more appreciated, and I think you have a better affection for than what you would for the 1990s version.
0: Mm -hmm. But um, going back to the original film, as Christina the wife and Nicole the mistress are awaiting for the body to be discovered there is a lot of tension and then once that the pool has been drained and there is no body then there starts to be panic about where the body went and whether or not somebody knows what they did and is now trying to blackmail them or just kind of like screw with their heads and there's a, a boy who, um, who says that he's seen the, the headmaster, the husband, and there's introduced, like, this element of, like, a, a gothic kind of ghost story. Christina starts to think that she's being haunted. You know, she, she is buying more into these sightings than than Nicole is, for sure. Nicole is definitely more of the quintessential femme fatale that we see in film noir than is the wife. The wife is much more of an innocent in this movie. She's much more optimistic. She's religious. She's faithful. She's, you know, altruistic. And... Whereas Nicole is very much motivated by money, by sex. She's cynical. She's matter of fact. She, uh, she's, I get the impression that she was the brains behind the whole operation.
1: Yeah, I do too. And I like that the film addresses those different, um, Characters in such a way where you can see that, uh, as we kind of mentioned before, it brings out the different. Elements that are in all of us. Um, each character kind of represents a different darkness, if you will, that we have. Uh, all I could think about throughout the film with the three different main characters with uh, the husband, the wife, and the mistress, you kind of had the representation of uh, the id, the ego, and the superego.
0: Mm. <laughs> I like that.
1: So... There's a lightness and a darkness in everyone. And I think that a lot of that centers around just how far you're willing to go with that darkness. I think it's hard to watch this film in 2022 and not touch on just um, a little bit of the aspect of the female genre of the film. And how we see two different women here completely different women um where you have um nicole who kind of reveals the darkness and the more of a sexy seductive uh type of caring and more just kind of an open And um, wild at heart nature and then as you mentioned Christina who you know is uh, ultimately you know very timid Uh, she's sickly, she's religious you see those two completely different characters that are are working together and contradicting each other through the whole film Um, but I think that this definitely plays a role into uh, characters as far as uh, the female in life And how um, there was that element of uh, being taken advantage of. And then also the theme that was picked up on uh, of, you know, finding that voice and then actually and finding that courage within and actually doing something um, to Combat your problems, if that makes any sense at all. I thought that that was just something to kind of touch on and relate to in today's society with what we see, um, with more of the the rise of the the female.
0: This this film definitely does what a lot of films at the time period, and honestly, even up until many years in the two thousands, where it has it doesn't necessarily have a complex female character they are characters that emulate that virgin whore dichotomy where the wife is moral and upstanding and nearly saintly and then the mistress is the complete flip side of that and I think that it starts in the very basic outline of her role, which is as a mistress, so she's already the other woman, the sinner, um, and the one who's overtly sexual, the plotter and the schemer. And they both play their roles very well. Mm-hmm. I agree. But yeah, it's it's interesting that the you know the the saintly character actually does end up going through with the murder although it heavily weighs on her conscience and is you know it's it's what they manipulate into driving her insane basically
1: yeah it was uh, really she was the perfect candidate for for that, I think that they knew all along um, exactly how uh, Christina's downfall would play out. Um, that they could just kind of, from the beginning, um, mold her and shape her into uh, complete self destruction.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I felt so bad for her at the end when uh, when she dies. Although I did find the very end of it kind of interesting whenever that same boy who claims that he saw the, the headmaster, the husband, and it turns out that he was being honest, and he did actually see him because he wasn't really dead, says that he got his, um, he got a toy back, and he was given it back by Christina. And so then you're left wondering... Is she a ghost now? Are there ghosts in this movie in this universe? are ghosts that will real? haunt
1: the school. So <laughs> it makes you wonder. Very interesting, but yeah, I thought that uh, this film um, was done well. Um, it would have. Um, it makes me wonder how it would have uh, played out and how it would have been different if it was a Hitchcock film.
0: Yeah, because the director of this film beat out Alfred Hitchcock to the rights to the novel that it was based on
1: by like mere minutes or hours, I think. Yeah, so um, Alfred Hitchcock really wanted it, um, and so it always leaves me guessing how he would have done it differently. But I think all in all, it came out good. I think it was, I think it was very good, especially for its time, and if you saw very many films from that era. Um, I imagine it was considered very um, racy and seductive, even though there wasn't really much of that at all. Um, But I think that with all things considered, it was touching into a lot of really um, no-go topics at that time. And so for me, that it was brave and definitely something that hadn't been done before in French film. uh, And then as it related over to the American cinema.
0: You didn't, especially then, often see women actively commit murder and cover it up. Mm-hmm. And you certainly didn't see the murder on screen.
1: Yeah, for sure. So it was, yeah. There was some pretty good moments in there. There was some kind of even and and uh, all these years later, um, still kind of watching that and kind of biting your nails a little bit.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I definitely felt a lot of the tension and anxiety in the in the movie while I was watching it for sure.
1: So, uh, it was overall, I thought it was a really good film. Uh, I appreciated the suspense and I appreciated the boldness in uh, giving and going where film hadn't really been before and then uh, taking that noir and kind of putting a little spin on it. So, um, I give the film four out of five stars.
0: Yeah, I I would agree with that rating. I think that the way that the plot was set up and executed, uh, the way that it was acted and those roles were embodied by the performers, the cinematography and just the way that it was able to effectively communicate the apprehension and the sheer like nervousness <laughs> of the characters, um, I thought that the that the film communicated its themes and its and its story very effectively, and uh, yeah, I would definitely give it a four out of five stars as well. Right. And that brings us to talking about Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley, a remake of a film based on a novel. <laughs> so the movie follows Stan Carlisle, and the film opens where you see him leaving. A house that he has set on fire with a body buried under the floorboards. And when the film opens, of course, you don't know who this person is in relation to him at all, but it propels his story forward into running into this traveling circus or carnival, becoming a part of that carnival family, learning the tricks of mentalism, leaving the carnival, ascending in fame and notoriety, and then a very dramatic plunge back downward.
1: Yeah, that summarizes it pretty good, I think. Um, Really, really great movie. Um, I thought that this was something that really came together and that uh, just from start to finish, I was with it. Um, I never, um, like Diabolique, as we talked about, to me there was never a dull moment. I did not find the film um, slow or um, ever having a lack of interest in it. I thought that it was fantastic from start to finish, and I thought that it was really visual appealing, visually appealing as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't think of a single... Del Toro movie that is not just beautiful to look at in every frame.
1: Exactly. He just really, I don't understand how he gets it every single time. He's one of those, I've yet to see a film of his that I haven't enjoyed.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I've always loved about Del Toro is that he's just so passionate about what it is that he's doing. He loves film. He loves the weird, he loves monsters, he loves exploring that darkness, and he comes across as a very empathetic soul, and I think that empathy is really necessary in order to communicate stories that have that darker aspect and layer without losing that humanity and, you know, taking away the engagement of the audience. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. He really is, he kind of reminds me of, um, in the sense of American film, he kind of defies his own culture of film. If you will, when we say it's a del Toro film, he's in his own category. So I think, you know, just kind of like with um, Woody Allen and Tim Burton, uh, when you think of Guillermo del Toro, he has his own style and his films are all uh, definitely uh, depicted in such a way that you know that it's his by the actual unique and just greatness that's around the sense of filmmaking that he actually does.
0: Yeah, the attention to detail, not only visually, but then also with the character development, I think is really apparent in the way that the actors are able to communicate and embody their roles. Because um, I read that he, he wrote little backstories for every single character that he gave to the actors, even featuring little tiny details like a particular scent that the character really enjoyed or something oh, wow. like that. So, yeah, you... Um, it's, it's something that may not be very apparent, but it's something that I think you pick up on in a subtle way with just how layered these characters are without the need for a lot of heavy-handed exposition on who they are.
1: Yeah, I think that that definitely um, and you see that come through in the performances, which once again, um, I think that this uh, film, uh, everybody to me in this film was spot on. Um, There weren't any weak characters, there wasn't any weak performances. Uh, This to me was just a home run, and I appreciated the fact that um, sticking in kind of that old Hollywood theme, you get to see kind of some big-name performers um, with this all-star cast that may not necessarily have large roles, but even within those small roles, there's a lot of depth in the characters that you see. So I really appreciated kind of the old Hollywood approach that he took with this film and kind of had an all-star cast, but everybody fulfilled a purpose in the film. Mm -hmm. There wasn't any waste of character utilization.
0: Yeah, this is definitely the definition of a star-studded cast. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and they're and they're all like so brilliantly talented too. It's just it's just like an embarrassment of riches when it comes to <laughs> to, to acting talent here. Yeah, so Stanton Carlisle is is definitely like this kind of quintessential noir character in that like He's morally ambiguous. He's very cynical. He's kind of, um, he's, he's got this singular focus on always getting more out of life, but in a very materialistic way. Um, and he, he's alienated. From the rest of society, and he kind of exists on these fringes, and that's what leads him into joining this very fringe group of people, which are the carnival workers.
1: And I think that's interesting, because one of the points that uh, I got from this film was carnival life represents a certain style of life that where everyone's accepted. You come in, and it doesn't matter what your past is, it doesn't matter what your opinions are, you have a place at that table. And so I, I see that in life, you know, with certain aspects of how people get involved in different groups, you know, whether that group be you know you get involved in a gang or you get involved um, in a church or you know you get involved in you know some kind of um, bridge club whatever it is there's that level of acceptance because you're one of them and that's the interesting thing to me about the carnival life is that um, you know it doesn't matter what kind of freak or outcast you are you're accepted so that was really interesting to me to see that that somebody fits everywhere and from there it's what you take and do with that
0: yeah the the carnival life I think has always had this representation within American culture but probably in the wider culture as well of This sense of freedom and acceptance that you can be who you are however odd or unusual that is and there's always going to be a place for you there um and in fact like whatever it is that makes you different is the is your your strength in in that community
1: and i think it gives you a lot of um chance to be more open-minded as well within a lot of things i think that you um, have a different way of looking at different things um, whereas you realize that not everything is so black and white so i think that that kind of uh, opens up um, more of a sense of community, even though um, it may be a community of people who've been ostracized by everybody else, but there's still that sense of togetherness.
0: It's interesting to think about the the kind of like mindset and culture present there in the in the carnival that you see in the movie that that kind of touches on some of the key aspects of film noir as a genre and that there's like this element of cynicism in a way but it's a cynicism that's rooted in experience and reality like they've they've been ostracized from society they've already seen some of the ways that culture can be extremely ugly to each other and they've you know like banded together in spite of it and that you know there's while they may be like considered ugly or weird or you know unwanted by mainstream society whenever the film goes to mainstream society and the people with privilege and money it turns out that they're the actual monsters Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so much uh, revealed in this film, I think, that uh, just kind of like Diabolique touches in on the inner monster within all of us. Um, There's a lot of foreshadowing in this film, too, I think, that you really uh, pick up on after you see there's um, a whole lot of different things that kind of let you know that there is tragedy that's coming. Um, You just have to be prepared for it. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and there's, um, whenever I was reading uh, some articles about uh, interviewing Del Toro on the, on the movie and various aspects of the movie, when discussing the ending, he um, talked about the film kind of like as a Greek tragedy and how, like, you know, in a Greek tragedy, the drama comes from the gods being against you, and destiny is something that is imposed upon you. And in the American version of tragedy, which is noir for me in many ways, he says, the inexorable downfall comes from the decisions of man. And the article said that del Toro reminds us that this downfall is something we have been warned is coming throughout the movie. We give him all the tools to be happy in the movie. Quite literally, we hand him a happy ending over and over, but he wants more and it's not enough.
1: And that is so... Um, representative of American culture, I think that's one thing you see that you know in this film. Um, he goes from rags to riches, it's still not enough. You know, there's that longing for happiness uh, with uh, companionship. He gets the beautiful woman, it's not enough. You know, he has to have more. Um, there's the um, notoriety and uh, of being good at what you do and being uh, looked up to and admired by others, that's not enough. Uh, So we see that so much, I think, in American culture today um, with consumerism. And, you know, the house is never big enough. Uh, We don't have enough followers on Instagram. We don't, you know, whatever it is, once again, it's that inner Monster within us that just wants to consume, consume, consume. And I thought that that really hit home um, with that message from the film. And once again, back to the foreshadowing of how, you know, eventually the never enough is going to be what it is that eventually takes you to your downfall.
0: Yeah, thinking about that never ending search. For more um, I was immediately thinking back to from the various flashbacks in the film how you learn more about his relationship with his father and just how fraught and um, difficult and traumatic that was for him and it seems like he never got enough from his father either and it just kind of makes me wonder if a large part of his motivation for always looking for more is rooted in that lacking that he always felt throughout his childhood
1: that's the impression I got from it that's what I felt all along throughout the film and I think that even whenever we look at some of the different characters in the film uh, I think that there's something missing you know within a lot of them as well Um, Kate Blanchett's character is Dr. Lilith Um, you know you see that she's this powerful woman um, and she is um, you know well educated and very very successful uh, in her career as a psychologist, but also there's something that she's missing. You know, there's there's this uh, her in the scheming plot and um, still wanting to have a void in her life fulfilled. Um, and then also you see in Richard Jenkins' character as uh, Ezra Grendel, who's this very successful, powerful, very very wealthy man. Uh, yet um, from a past tragedy in his life, he has a void that has to be filled as well. So you see all of these different representations of different types of lifestyles. Um, the Those who are really, really um, well educated, very successful, and then you have those that are down the lowest of the low. Everybody's seeking something in this life, and there's never enough to fill that void. Yeah,
0: even the most powerful characters in the movie who buy Society standards would technically have it all have a very distinct level of brokenness to them that, that they seem to try to hide or overcompensate with either their wealth or their education or their stations in life. I just I really loved Kate Blanchett's character um, I found her so interesting and that like you never really got to know that much about her she was like very enigmatic like you just got a little hints at to what her her background consisted of and how she had kind of built up this world and this facade around her that insulated her from whatever kind of hurt that she still had within herself and reading about the way that del toro um wrote about her as being like a corrective to the femme fem fatale that you normally see in noir cinema is um, you know she she actually wins you know mm-hmm. <laughs> she gets what she wants she she, she triumphs and uh, Del-, Del Toro just had a really interesting um, thing to say about the femme fatale that I thought was really interesting in that he said that one of the things that gave birth to the femme fatale notion was that people were very scared of women with agency. The only way they could (laughs) accept it was to have her be punished at the end. And I love that, that that she doesn't get punished at the end. She's the one who punishes.
1: Yeah. It left me wanting a prequel film, uh, a prequel um, about Dr. Lilith. So um, Kate Blanchett just always hits a home run in everything she does. God, she is amazing
0: she is she can do no wrong
1: yeah so I think that She really uh, outdid herself in this film, too. I just uh, wanted to mention, I thought that it was very interesting that the film uh, has just a slight comparison from uh, clairvoyancy to religion. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's the uh, portion in the film where Stanton uh, makes the comment about, you know, everybody's looking for something, whether that be uh, that the message that the preacher gives from the pulpit or, you know, what he actually was doing with his Mentalism approach, and I agree with that. I think that people want answers, you know, they want something that's going to be given to them, and so whether they seek that from the mentalist, or they seek it from the psychologist, or they seek it from religion, or they put all their faith into that politician, uh, everybody has something that they want, and I don't necessarily want to say um, something that is made easy for them, but everybody's looking for answers in life. When there is that void and that hole and something is missing, um, you're searching for that and it's different it's interesting how different people are gonna take different approaches to that. And I thought that the way that the film touched on that was really cool. How, you know, what direction are you gonna take in order to find what it is in life that you're looking for and get those answers
0: yeah it's a it's a universal theme wanting to to know and to find out whether it's to know more about yourself to know more about the universe to know more about other people we we all have some level of a desire to find out more and to you know gather some comfort from those answers that assurance that there are some certainties in life. And there are no certainties in life, (laughs) unfortunately. Except Death
1: and Taxes, right? Right, Death and Taxes. You can always count on that. Well, Del Toro always delivers. I went into this film with great expectations. Um, I came out with um, being just as pleased as I thought I would be, uh, maybe even more so. Uh, he delivers on all sides. The performances were out of this world. The colors, my God, the costumes. Uh, you could just get completely Wrapped up in that, and uh, also the um, gore aspect. There, it seems like in every single Del Toro film, there's at least one instance of some type of uh, murder or brutality that has uh, strong visual effects, but also something that's really gory, that's really going to stick with you. And he delivered again in this film. So every time he delivers on all aspects, I just really. Appreciate, and it's not the same thing over and over again. You know, the, his films are just can be, um, there's that same sense, like we said, where he's identified, you can identify easily this is a Del Toro film, but it's as different as Pan's Labyrinth is from The Shape of Water, from Nightmare Alley. I mean, all these films are unique but at the same time they have that same del toro effect but um yeah i was just really really impressed with this film and i thought that it came together great and i think that it's uh, very worthy of a best picture nomination uh, that it received this year for the 2022 oscars
0: yeah there seems to be an element of the grotesque that is highlighted in each Del Toro film but it's not it's not done in a in an exploitative way or a way that is meant to intrinsically like horrify you necessarily because there's always this level of respect and kind of benevolence that goes with with the monsters, with with the grotesqueries that you see, like with um, this kind of cabinet of curiosities type approach with certain elements of the film, like I'm thinking back to the very um, uh, it's uh, the uh, the the baby in the jar,
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> Enoch <laughs> with his with his third eye, and there's a certain amount of love I think that comes from that comes with these creatures that you see whether it's the fish man in shape of water whether it's the you know carnival workers or even a baby in a jar it's like there's a certain level of um affection and kindness for for those who are different Uh yeah i just always i always love that about a del toro movie and you know as a as a person with a lifelong affection for things that are weird and odd it, it definitely speaks to me
1: <laughs> yes yeah me as well too i think you know um you see so much um personality come through and uh, all of the different monsters and ghouls or uh, characters who have that monster side to them in del toro films there was an um interview that was done with del toro and i never realized but um he's always had a lifelong fascination obsession uh with mary shelling's frankenstein um and then the film as a kid and so i think that you see that in everything that he does now as well too because you know you have the scary and grotesque of frankenstein and this misunderstood but at the end um inside, you know, here is this person there's a sense of gentleness and also a sense of uh, just being misrepresented and not knowing, you know, there's just so much of the unknown in life still yet. And so I think you see that a lot in each and every character in this film. Uh, you can, there's a little bit of uh, identity of that same Frankenstein sense, um, if that makes any sense at all.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, he he, has, he loves his monsters.
1: Yeah, so...
0: That's something I was... I, was um, I picked up in an article and that I was thinking about whenever we were talking about Diabolique was the imagery of the eye and that there's, like, this recurring, this recurring imagery of the eye in this film and whether it be, like, the, the eye on the mentalist, mm-hmm. you know, blindfold, Enoch's third eye you know just this like circular um this circular motif and how that can kind of harken back to the concept of both flashbacks and foreshadowing and that you're going backwards yet everything is leading towards the end and um it just whenever we were talking about diabolique it it just made me think of like that part at the end where he's popping out his contacts that made him appear to be dead and just how often that camera like focused on his eyes uh-huh. um throughout the throughout the movie so just like a, a visual kind of tie in there
1: uh-huh.
0: um that I was reminded of in in an issue of uh, the Hollywood Reporter uh, Guillermo del Toro said that This movie, it's all about mankind, how cruel we can be to each other, and how close we are to losing everything, all of the time, and in a very fast way. Hmm. And, yeah, that's definitely a very powerful theme in this movie.
1: Having watched the film, yeah, I can see that for sure. It really just takes you from the bottom to the top, back to the bottom, and it really does that. In a certain way that just keeps you hanging by um, the edge, on to hanging on to the edge of your seat the whole time doing so. So great, 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 great film. If you're gonna see a movie um, this year, then definitely watch Nightmare Alley. It's which is now streaming.
0: Yes, it is streaming on Hulu.
1: Hulu, so easy access and watch this film. I can't say enough good things about it, so you will not be let down. If you are, then that is your own fault. So,
0: <laughs> whether it's the aesthetics of the film and you are into the Art Deco, which we are, <laughs> it will appeal to the fan of that kind of architecture and style. It will appeal to the aesthetics of those who love the 40s and 50s vibes if you are into uh, carnival aesthetics especially like vintage carnival aesthetics you're gonna just enjoy the hell out of it and then just the overall themes uh, which are you know popular Guillermo del Toro themes of um, you know the, the offbeat and the unusual and the the beauty and the, the heart that can be found within that, and contrasting to the monstrousness that you can find within humanity, not to mention, the phenomenal acting. So, overall, it's a it's a fantastic film and. Um, I would have no problems giving it a 5 out of 5.
1: Very generous, yes. (laughs) I give it 4.5 out of 5. So I think that it was just very, very good. And um, looking forward to watching it again. Mm
0: -hmm. And that ending. Mm.
1: Powerful. (laughs) Powerful. So next month we will be back um it's good to be back it's been um a long hiatus and life has been extremely crazy but um it's good to be back
0: yeah we've been on a bit of an impromptu hiatus um with both of us being in grad school and working full time and just the various shenanigans that life can thrust upon you is uh but yeah, it feels really good to be back putting together an episode and doing the research and yeah, doing the doing the work for the little graphics and things. Like it's it's fun to exercise those creative muscles.
1: It's good to just be able to enjoy good film and talk about it. You know, we may be boring you all to death, but there's just nothing uh, quite in this world like a good film, and uh, to me, I just think that it's great to just hash some of that out and get those feelings out about the um, emotions that are brought out by that, that actual form of art. So, for March, we're going to follow back up with the Oscars like we did last year, so Um, Look forward to that. So we'll have a special episode for Oscars just covering the winners, the losers, the highlights, and those who are the best dressed. Yes. And, uh,
0: yeah. Our special our special Oscars episode and uh, and then that will probably be followed with um, a deep dive into whoever wins best picture like we did last year yes
1: so just several different things to come so hang on and plan to be back with us
0: yes we're back <laughs> whether you like it or not yes so thank you for joining us and we will see you next time
1: all right goodbye.
0: If you liked what you heard, then please rate, review, and subscribe. That kind of feedback really helps small podcasts like ours get noticed and heard by more people. If you're listening on Spotify, you can hit like and follow instead. If you want to send us a review by email or any other feedback, then feel free to email us at filmlymatters at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at Filmly Matters and check out our website at FilmlyMatters.com where you can read more about us, listen to full episodes, and read our film critiques and reviews.
1: Thank you!